0: good morning Uh, as jake mentioned and prayed and as you saw in that video i don't know how many of you picked up one of these before while we were still meeting together but uh federation christian camps and intervarsity some other organizations had set aside today may 31st 2020 as a day of prayer for camps i don't think when they set it aside they realized how important it would be for us to pray for camps at this moment who aren't having summer camp whose financial picture is up in the air. Um, and we with, with, with Squia and Kakwa, which are definitely part of our family here, I want to encourage you to pray for these camps as they navigate the summer and the future. Uh, I also want to talk about the fact that there's somewhere over here, there's a little red box on your screen. I feel like the weather lady pointing to something that's not actually there. Um, we found that. We'll fix it for next week. Uh, it could just be a glitch or it could be if you really want to think big, it could be because today is Pentecost Sunday. If you could see the, the the sanctuary today, there's big red swaths of fabric hanging from the the wall here to show this this image of the coming of the Spirit that we celebrate on Pentecost. And, you know, remember back in Revelation 7 that, that the followers of the Lamb are marked with the Spirit. So this is a day that we in the church calendar celebrate the coming of the Spirit, which is what sets us apart, which what it gives us the presence of God with us at all times, and so we're excited uh, to celebrate that today. We're in Revelation again. We're over halfway, so you're feeling good. We'll end up with this at the beginning of, of July. There's lots to see as we go through, and it's it's very easy to lose the big picture, the message of it, because of all the uh, the unsettling images that you see. Um, but, but the bottom line is that it starts initially with God among his people as they are suffering. That's the idea. The people reading it are suffering. God's with them. And, and this coming of his kingdom upsets the status quo. It makes life difficult for those who follow Jesus. And he calls them to overcome. We saw the seals and the pause of, of in the, between 6 and 7, which says you're marked, you're safe, you have a seal of the Holy Spirit on you. We saw the trumpet judgments as people resist the kingdom, these things that come, uh, these warnings. And the message to the church was be a witness even to death because you're safe. And last week we started looking at what is the very heart of the book, chapter 12, 13, and 14. We saw uh, the woman, the dragon, the child, uh, the conflict that's going on, this cosmic conflict, and that the dragon was defeated and hurled down. But the chapter ended, uh, well, in verse 12 and verse 17 of 12, it ends with a difficult message. It says, "'Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury because he knows that his time is short.'" And in the end, verse 17, "'Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring.'" Who would those people be? Those who obey God's commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And, and we talked last week that defeated dragons make life difficult. And this week we're going to see how that plays out in chapter 13. Now before we do that, I want to make one comment in regards to timing. Uh, Daryl Johnson in his book, Discipleship on the Edge, does what I think is the best treatment of revelation I've ever read. And I'm stealing 90% of this sermon series from Daryl's work. So don't I need to give him credit, but one of the questions that keeps coming up, especially when we get to chapter 13, is timing and specificity. Who are these beasts? When is this happening? What is the number of the beast? And in the coming chapter, a lot of people spend their time trying to figure out who or what exactly these things symbolize, when they're going to happen. But one of the rules we've talked about with Revelation is to let go briefly of your previously held ideas and look for what the text might be saying differently. And I, I, I think these concepts in 13, these two beasts that we're going to see, this number that we're going to see, are, are, are things that have happened. I think they were relevant to the church who first read this book. They're relevant to us today. They're things that have happened continuously throughout history. You're going to see that. But I'll I'll let um, our scripture reading happen. I love asking people to read the scripture because I love watching your face as you read this text out loud. Uh, We've got Brandon and Cheyenne Williams and a guest appearance from Sydney who will read the text. Go, Sydney. Revelation 14.
1: And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of the heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for forty-two months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme. His name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on earth and who worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If everyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with a sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints.
2: Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. It also performs great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven On to earth in front of the people. It deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs that it is permitted to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was permitted to give birth to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could both speak and cause whoever would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And it makes everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave. To receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast's name or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understood standing calculate the number of the beast because it is the number of a person. It is number six six six.
1: Let me see the video. Hi Daddy!
0: think my favorite thing on that whole video i appreciate you reading the text guys my favorite thing is as cheyenne gets up to turn off the video brandon's still looking at the text like what in the world did i just read and I, this is that kind of text right the first thing that strikes me as you read this text as you, you you're thinking through our pictures of revelation and what we've assumed is that there's not one beast but there's two right i want you to remember that we're looking at how the defeated dragon makes the life of believers difficult. And what you see, because that's, that's where chapter 12 ended, what you see at the beginning of 13 is him calling forth these two beasts, his two assistants, and, and that's how he's going to make the life of believers difficult during this time from the resurrection till the return of Christ. And I want us to look at who these, who or what these two beasts are. We're going to start first naming the beasts From the sea. See, I I think these beasts are very visible in the world that we live in today. I think they were very visible in the world that the people lived in when they first read this text for the the first time. There's some striking characteristics. And and as you look at the text, it says a lot of things about this first beast in the first eight verses. Seven heads, we've talked about authority. The heads is a symbol of authority. And ten horns, symbol of power. And, and, and crowns royal power and wealth and, and, and these possessions that this person would have. And whatever this beast is, the theme there, we have to realize it's about a kingdom. It's about a kingdom. It's further echoed, in, like in verse 2. The beast, saw, the beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and mouth of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. Those images of the animals are very similar to what we saw back in Daniel chapter 7. I'm not going to read it now, but in Daniel 7, Daniel has a dream, and and these four beasts show up, uh, and they represent four different kingdoms in the timeline from Babylon up to the birth of Jesus. The first is the head of a lion, that's Babylon. The second has the head of a bear, that's Persia. The third is like a leopard with Greece, and the fourth... Iron teeth like Rome. And then it says the son of man would come and he would topple these four kingdoms and establish his own. Well, well, the revelation pulls from those images in this one beast coming out of the sea. And it says the dragon gives this beast, all these kingdoms amalgamated into one, his power and his authority. Now remember his power and authority is limited. Remember when the dragon was thrown out of heaven, his tail swiped a third of the stars from the sky he does have power, he does have authority, but it's limited. And, and he gives that to the beast in verse 2. In verse 5 and verse 7, we see that this beast is also given authority from, from, even from God, allowed to do things. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise authority for 42 months. Once again, this period of journey, there's a certain limited time that this beast will have some authority. And in verse 7, he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them, and he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. You've got to realize that even these beasts are working under the authority of God. Even the dragon has a limited authority. Jesus, when he stands before Pilate in John 19, verses 10 and 11, Pilate says, don't you realize, Jesus, I have the authority to crucify you? And Jesus says, you would have no authority if it were not given to you by my father. You see, this beast does have some power, some authority on behalf of the dragon, but it's limited. But the people follow the beast. In verse 4, they say, who is like this beast? Who can make war against it? Once again, this idea of a kingdom, right? Whoever or whatever the beast is, it has to do with some type of kingdom or political structure, and it's interesting because it lives even though it dies. In verses three and four, it says that one head of this beast had a fatal wound. Now I didn't look up the word fatal, but most of the time fatal means you die. You don't survive fatal wounds, but but some part of this beast survives death. Now it's interesting to read it in their context, the people who originally heard it, because Nero, who would have been an, an image of the political authority of the day, just before this time period committed suicide at age 32 but there was an urban legend that he didn't really die that some wealthy landowner kind of whisked him away safely to recover and it became this this ripple effect that people thought maybe nero's still alive so much so that the next emperor otho actually said that that he was an incarnation of nero and it, it became this thing that that. The embodiment of Nero became a source of power. In fact, Domitian, who was the emperor at this time, would often refer to himself as a renewal of Nero. Now, that's not so far fetched from our world. You know, my my generation, maybe just before my generation, uh, would have would have heard the rumor about JFK after he was assassinated that he was actually whisked away to a Greek island by Aristotle Onassis, and he and 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 lived there until this day, right? And it, it was it was. Nothing real, it was an urban legend was what it was, but it caught people's imagination. And I I want you to know, I consulted the internet this week, and the internet always tells the truth. And JFK and Marilyn Monroe are currently living on an island in the Bahamas. And Elvis is somewhere outside Vegas eating fried chicken at this very moment. Uh, We laugh, but what I want you to see is these urban legends have a life of their own. And 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 once again, this points to this idea of a political ideology that, that in some way it died, but it stayed alive and keeps going. Third, with this beast, we see that it has a problem with its mouth. In verse 5 and 6, it starts uttering these blasphemies. Now, it's not a problem with the beast. It can, it does, its mouth works fine. But he takes his stand against God and, and blasphemy against God. The, the one he's been under the authority of he he stands away from and blasphemes. And it says in verse 8 that the inhabitants of the earth, that's a phrase we've heard all throughout uh, Revelation that talks about the people who resist God, that they worship him. Whatever political entity this is, it moves from working under the authority of the true king to seeking its own glory and honor. And it grows to a desire for worship. What you see here is a political structure, system, or a person that has abdicated its role as a servant of God and has sought to be equal with or above God. Sounds exactly like what the dragon did, right? Wanted to be like God, so he rebelled and he sought and he still seeks worship, This, this bowing down and surrender. That's what worship is. We bow down and surrender in worship to God, the ultimate king. Satan and this beast seek worship. See, what what I see is that this first beast is one tool of the dragon, and I want to call it, to name it, dragon-motivated political power. Now, wait a minute, Jeff. Doesn't Romans say God establishes our leaders and our authorities, those in positions of authority? It, It certainly does. In Romans chapter 13, 1 and 2, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established which we said in the text, right? This beast is under authority. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Yes, very, very true. And I encourage Christians to be involved in the political process. I'm not saying the political process itself is evil. But I'm saying it's, it, it, it's, it's tempted, it's It's loaded. Can anyone deny that rulers and political powers have misused the authority that they've been given? That their actions and words have often been blasphemous to God as they've sought not to serve His purposes, but their own, to elevate themselves. A mouth that speaks blasphemy. See, this beast reminds us that one of the ways that this defeated dragon makes our life difficult is by hijacking political leaders and tempting them with power. You can have more power. You you don't have to be under the authority of God. It's what we see Satan coming to Jesus in the desert and saying, you know, all this will be yours if you will only worship me. It's definitely happening in John's day. It's happening in our own day. That political powers don't seek to to work under the authority of God, but seek to elevate themselves. So we'll get back to that more. But for a second, I want to go to naming beast number two. Second beast is very different seems to want to serve the first. It brings all its power to bear on pointing people to the first beast in worship. And it looks different than the first beast. It looks like a lamb, but its mouth is just like that of the first beast. It spews forth arrogance and blasphemy. And this is the section where we see that cryptic number 666 that has inspired so many ideas and Facebook posts even this week. Um, Let's let's look at a few things from the text. In verse 11, we see this second beast is a different kind of lamb. He looks like a lamb, as long as he's quiet. But it says when he speaks, he sounds like the dragon. See, this one is deceptive. As opposed to a slain lamb who's willing to sacrifice and give himself, this is a power-hungry lamb. A lamb who has a very clear mission. And and not only does he have a clear mission, he has something to back it up. In verse 12 and 13, we see a display of power. Verse 12, he exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf. Verse 13, he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. See, this beast, this second one, isn't just talk. And he sets up this image of the first beast. And it says he gives breath to it. We'll get back to that later. He he brings it alive. He takes this first beast and gives something else to it that it needs so that people will actually worship it. And his power works wonders. It accomplishes exactly what the beast wants it to. It facilitates misdirected worship. Falls right into the plans of the dragon and the first beast. It directs people to worship the dragon via the first beast. In fact, it says this beast could kill you if you didn't worship the first beast. And many did die, didn't they? In in Rome, as these people were confronted with the, the call that they had to say Caesar is Lord, and they refused and said Jesus is Lord, they suffered and they died. It was no easy confession to make sure that you were in the right camp, that you were worshiping the beast to keep yourself safe. To, make, to keep it all straight, the, the, the ones he recruits are marked with a number. Now, this is the section I say that's been talked about quite a bit, this famed mark of the beast. I'm going to talk about it more in a minute. But for now, I just want you to see the reason it's important is it separates what I'll call the church of the beast from the church of the Lamb. There's, there's, there's a marking of the people of the beast that separates them from believers. See, all of those things, all those images make me think this second beast is dragon-motivated religious power. That's a scary thought, Jeff. What What are you saying? Well, in John's day, we see already that Rome had brought religion into the service of the political system. The emperor had become an object of worship. It had been growing for years and years. It still wasn't in full swing. It would get worse as time went on. And see, John's saying that while all this is happening, while the kingdoms are clashing, while the trumpet judgments are being poured out as a warning to the world, that one of the key ways that the dragon will exercise his power is through political systems that get intoxicated with their own power that are supported by religious structures that do the same thing. In fact, political power alone will never rule the world. Because it's lacking. Just a political structure can't touch the human heart unless you engage it with some kind of religious meaning. That's why the, the image is set up, but the second beast has to give it breath. It's, the, the religious aspect of a political structure is what actually brings it to life. It makes people willing to worship it. And you may be running ahead of me here. Maybe this is a problem today, too. We'll talk about that in a minute. But before we do, I I want to make one other thing clear about these two beasts and the dragon. I almost called this sermon, in fact, when I preached this text before, I called it imitation is the sincerest form of flattery because all throughout the text we see the dragon's attempt at imitation. Even though defeated by God's armies, tossed out of heaven, he still seeks to be like God. He mimics the almighty in several visible ways. Five in our text. First thing I see is a beastly trinity. God is trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All one God, yet all distinct within that. What does the dragon do? He drafts beast number one and beast number two, thing number one and thing number two, so that he can be a trinity as well. And a part of that real trinity, Son, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Son dies on a cross. He suffers A fatal wound. You see, and and the beast says, I'm going to be healed, have healing from a fatal wound as well. You know, just a a sideline note, and I kind of touched on this before political systems don't die. You know, you, you don't kill a political system. Ideologies morph and change. They, they appear to die, but then they're reborn, right? Nazism shifts to communism, shifts, shifts to nationalism or fascism. And, and we see that. You cannot kill these ideologies. They keep re, rebirthing themselves, mutated forms. But this dragon, he's a trinity with the two beasts. He mimics the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's almost as if he has no creativity at all. He's taking all the ideas of the Father and incorporating them into his own self. You've seen people like that, right? They they feel like if I'm just like this person, I'll get what they have. The dragon tries over and over to imitate God because his ultimate goal is to become an object of worship. If you read through the book of Isaiah, all throughout the book of Isaiah, God the Father says, Who is like me? Who does this? Who does this? Who is like me? And what you see here, Satan rejoices as his followers cry in verse 4 of chapter 13, Who is like the beast? There's nobody like the beast. And yet one of the clear commands of God is to worship him alone. Satan also mimics God in the use of signs. Verse 12, he performed great and miraculous signs. That's actual wording in Greek from the Greek version of the Old Testament that was used to describe what Moses did in Egypt. It's the same exact phrase from the Greek version of the Old Testament describing the signs that Moses did in Egypt. It says, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of man. This whole image of Elijah on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal calling down fire. See, the dragon has some moxie because he takes these two events that show him being defeated. The the captives, the Israelites being released from Egypt and, and the worship of Baal being defeated by Elijah calling down fire from heaven and he uses those two signs to promote himself. One last imitation and one I want to spend, spend a bit of time on because I know it's one people have a lot of questions about is both God and the dragon put marks on their followers. Now let me start by taking you back to chapter 7. It's very good with Pentecost Sunday. Between the 6th and 7th seal, John reminds us that the followers of the Lamb are marked with a seal. The gift of the Spirit. We talked about God living within us and how you can see that seal represented in our lives, in our character, in our actions. Because the Spirit lives in us, we should be living differently. And if you look at the very next verse in the book, Revelation 14:1, And there I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with Him the 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their Foreheads. It's this, this 144,000 mentioned again from chapter 7 with the name of the Lamb and the Father written on their heads. See, the name represented the character of the person in, in biblical times. And so it's like these people lived out who the Father was. And the dragon uses the beast to mark his followers as well. Now, I, th- I think, too, this is a demonstration of the character. It's a putting the name of the beast on the person because they act like he does why the forehead why the hand well here's your ideological your ways of thinking your hands are your ways of doing things what he's saying is these these people just like the believers are marked with the seal of the spirit that inspires one way of living followers of the beast and the dragon are marked on their head and their hand with the mark of the beast cuz that's how they live that's their character if you i think that's why you can't buy and sell <laughs> you know, we we get freaked out about oh i don't want to take the mark of the beast cuz look at but look what i'm going to have to suffer i think it's about character i think if you refuse to worship the beast and surrender to his authority it means you refuse to participate in the world that he sets up those who don't care about blasphemy of god go right on with their lives they live in this culture of the beast their character is formed in the same way those who refuse to live that way find it harder and harder to live within, their system, within that system. And it eventually results in, at best, their exclusion from the system. And at worst, their death. I, I think that's the mark of the beast. It's got way more to do with us living according to the character of the dragon or, of, or the mark of the spirit. But why the number 666? That seems weird. Where did that come from? Lots of possibilities. I'll give you the main one that people usually are drawn to, and then I'll give you mine. The text in verse 17 and 18 says, the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name, this calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast for it's man's number, his number is 666. Now, one of the main ways this has been interpreted is that the number has to do with the name of the beast, which it just said. And many of you know the Hebrew alphabet, Uh, is more than just an alphabet, that each letter has a numerical equivalent. It's called gematria. It's a numerology that's built into the Hebrew lettering system. So every letter has a number, like A1, B2, C3, I9, J10, K20. That's kind of the the way things work. And there have been all types of systems that have come out of this. And it was a common practice, if you had a Hebrew background, to figure out the number of your name. In case you're wondering, I am not the beast. My number is 774. If you transliterate Jeffrey Kuhn to Hebrew, I'm 774. And on the wall of a cave in Pompeii, there's a a thing that they have an inscription from that time. It says, I love her whose name is 545. You'll be happy to know that my wife, Angela Kuhn, her number is 564. She's not the beast either. I love her whose number is 564. One of the interesting things is if you take Nero Caesar, convert it to the Hebrew equivalent, his numbers add up to 666. But does that mean he's the beast? It's hard to say, because it's fairly easy to turn a name into a number, but it's not so easy to go back to a number and and make sure it's the right name, because all these people qualify. Nero is 666, Domitian, who's the ruler at that time, his number in Hebrew is 666, there are quite a few popes that have been in the history of the Catholic Church whose name have added up to 666. Napoleon, Stalin, Hitler, Henry Kissinger, even Ronald Wilson Reagan. Not with the Hebrew, but did you know Ronald Wilson and Reagan, those are three names all with six letters? And you know when he retired, he lived at 666 Saint Cloud Road in Bel Air. There's there's a million interpretations if you take the number and try to figure out a name. W, sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, World Wide Web, 666. Oh, it's the Internet. That's the beast, right? Or if you want to go back to chemistry, carbon is the building block of all life. Six protons, six neutrons, six electrons. Life is the beast. See, when you, when you start with a number and try to get to a name, it's confusing. There's, there's a million options. And the bottom line is, I don't really know what number of a specific person 666 would be, but I have a theory. You see, when we talk about the number of completeness and fullness in the Bible, we talk about the number seven, right? God creates the world in seven days. That's one of the reasons everything was done in seven days. Fullness, completion, perfection, and six is just one short. You see, Satan has sought to imitate God. He has sought worship. He's marked people with his character But what's the verdict he's coming up short he's not 777 everything he's trying to do to elevate himself is still coming up short daryl johnson in his book has a great phrase he says 666 clearly shows that the beast is completely incomplete he's not enough and we know that because last week we said the battle's already been won the dragon has lost His doom is secure, but he's backed into a corner, and he's unleashing his final fury upon the church. So he seeks to corrupt political structures that God has ordained. He seeks to corrupt the religious structures that God has ordained. He tries to imitate God in every way possible. So that that asks us, how do we live now then? Living with a defeated dragon for now, even though he's defeated, how do we live with him? It's a book about now, and there's several points I want us to take to heart as we leave. First is this, one of the ways we have to be careful is we have to keep politics in its place. We have to keep politics in its place. I read a book several years ago, Tempting Faith, by a guy named David Quo. He was a speechwriter and uh, one of the leaders in the George W. Bush administration. And, and he removed himself from politics completely because what, what he said, he said, My motives were good. I wanted to get into politics to do the right thing. He was a believer. But he said, the more I was there, I realized I was willing to compromise to keep my power. He said, it was just too tempting for me. And I think that's, that's one of the problems with power, especially political power, is once you gain it, it's hard to let it go. In Psalm 2, 1 to 3, it says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. It goes on to say, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. See, God realizes that, that as they gain power, all of a sudden the power becomes the thing that they worship. Power is hard to hold, it corrupts, it can easily be misled. So, Jeffrey, you're saying we should avoid politics? No, I'm not saying that. I think politics is a way that we address social ills in our society. I think God calls us to live actively and work for justice and peace and to lay down our lives for others, to do good. That's what it's talking about in Romans 13. But you have to see it as a tool that is under the leadership of God. And you have to be fully aware of Satan's deceitfulness, that this is one area where he can very quickly deceive you. It's a tool. Politics is a tool. It's not the answer to all our problems. And our true politics is transnational. It's the kingdom of God. And any time that the political structure Begins to contradict the kingdom of God, we have to to declare our allegiance to the kingdom of God. When the political system goes where we don't want to go, we don't go with it. And there is nothing to fear because our allegiance is to the higher king. See, Satan will use political systems, and one of the things he does is he marries them to religious systems. You have to be careful what you worship. One of the quickest ways we see problems in the political system is when it uses religious structures to give it credibility. When, when, the, when the second beast builds the idol and gives the first beast breath, should always be a time for caution. Stanley Hauer Voss, theologian who's writing about when Constantine came to Christ in the Roman Empire and he began to make Christianity the empire of the nation, he said the project begun at the time of Constantine was to enable Christians to share power without being a problem for the powerful. To enable Christians to share power without being a problem for the powerful. And I think that happens in our society. I think you just have to turn on CNN and Fox News to see it all play out. And unless we Canadians get holy and righteous, we do the same things here. There's, there's a parable told of a bear and a hunter who met in the woods, and the hunter wants to kill the bear, and the bear wants to eat the hunter. And they sit down and they have a conversation and, and the hunter says, all I want is a warm fur coat for the winter. And the bear says, all I want is a full stomach. And so they reach a compromise. Do you get this? The, the bear eats the hunter, and now the hunter has a warm coat, and now the bear has a full stomach. Well, that's kind of like the church and the state. We've got to be really careful not to throw our religious power into the political systems. We speak to the political systems of our higher allegiance, we don't just fall into them. Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. See, even religious structures can be the enemy of true discipleship. What we are to worship is only God. And we see Him clearly in this revelation of Jesus Christ, a God who is a slain lamb, a God who absorbs suffering and evil and transforms them, a God who is patient And waits for people to come to him, even if it means suffering for those he loves. A God who uses power in a radically different way than the world does. This is the one we need to bow before. This is the one we need to follow. And it's not always easy. Part of the Christian life is we need to learn to discern. In verse 18, it says, this calls for wisdom. This calls for wisdom. Back in chapter 12, 9, we read that the dragon is the one who leads the whole world astray. This is very challenging stuff. There's, there, there's been a struggle on for several years about the U.S. military in the Philippines and are they kicked out, are they staying? There's been more happening with it just recently. But I remember reading a letter several years ago from a lovely missionary in the Philippines. It was nobody that we supported. It was a different, I found it from a different source, so you don't try to figure out who it was. Um, but in the letter they said, if the U.S. military leaves, what is going to happen to this country? And I just thought, wait a second. It's not the U.S. military that's holding up that country or the church in that country. It's God. Well, see, it can be so easy to get sucked in and put our allegiance on a political structure to give our religious devotion to a political structure instead of to the kingdom of God. See, we, we say the same things. Oh, there's no prayer in schools. We're in such trouble they can't pray in school anymore. We're not in trouble, people. Who anybody can pray anytime they want. If that's defeated the church, no prayer in schools, then we're we are to be pitied above all men. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, the one who rules on the throne. Not having a prayer in a school authorized by the school does not scare me about God's future. No manger scenes in front of public buildings. Oh my goodness, what is God going to do now? (laughs) He's gonna win! He's gonna win. That's what the book says. We don't have to worry about that kind of thing. And yet, we get so wrapped up in these little trappings because we've lost political power in this area, not realizing that that political power is still under the authority of Jesus. And He's the one we serve, He's the one we follow, He's the one that can take care of Himself. I better get off my high horse here. I'm gonna get wrapped up, and nobody's even here, and I'm starting to yell at people. Oh, my goodness. I just want you to think maybe we've delegated way too much power to the state and to the political process. Maybe we've looked at that as our hope for the future. The only thing that can save the church is having the right people elected that will make our life easier. It's not true. It's it's idolatry. And we have to learn to discern what is really a part of the kingdom of God. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Ask for wisdom, and then surrender to the results of faithfulness. There's one section of the text that I haven't even mentioned because it's hard to deal with. And we'll wrap up with this. Verses 9 and 10, he who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Now these verses cause me a headache. I wasn't exactly sure what it meant and then it hit me. You see, when when the political and religious systems that we live in get shifted away from the lordship of Jesus, it causes great trouble for the people who want to hold on to the lordship of Jesus. It's it's an unshared center. And what I mean is this, that the disciples, we center our lives around the lordship of Jesus and his authority and his example. We want to overcome by keeping the deeds of the slain lamb. The political and religious structures that are hungry for power center around that power and the glory that they gain for themselves by the implementation of that power. And if we are centered here and they are centered there and and we refuse to come and center with them it's going to be painful. They begin to exert their power, crushing the people who will not surrender to their power. Ultimately, it comes down to allegiance. And the bottom line is that we're not first Canadians. We're not Americans. We're not Filipinos. We're not Mexicans. We're not any of that first. We're Christians. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. And our allegiance is to the kingdom of God. And we can offer support to earthly kingdoms, both political kingdoms and religious kingdoms. We can support those until they seek to elevate themselves above God's kingdom. And at that point, we can no longer offer them our allegiance. And that's where these words come in. If you're not offering your allegiance to the power structures, guess what? He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient Endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. See, what, what they're saying here is as the kingdoms of the world collide and people fight for their last stand, saints are going to die. You're going to have to be patient, endure with faithfulness. And, and the, reason, <laughs> the reason we can do that is because we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Because since Pentecost, the Spirit has lived inside of us to protect us, that we are free on both sides of death. We have nothing to fear. You see, oftentimes we're not understood by the political system and sometimes we're not even understood by the church. And that has implications for us. We need to accept those knowing that God will work out His will on our behalf. Our temptation may be to seek control, to regain the power that we need, to feel better, to vindicate ourselves. But remember, it's, it's a slain lamb that we follow. That's the one who's victorious. You see, In the midst of this flurry of satanic deception, we need to fully see Jesus for who he is. That's why we're looking at the revelation of Jesus. We need to see him. And and one of the images I'll leave you with today on this Pentecost Sunday is a cross. That's the revelation of Jesus. Those who wanted him to embrace political power become the king, right? Those who wanted him to use the Jewish faith, use that religious power to overthrow the Romans. But what did he do? He offered himself and they killed him. He entrusted himself to the Father. He gave his life for you and me, and then he says to us, follow in my example. Overcome, like we've said, by keeping the deeds of the slain lamb. That is our calling. Let's pray. God, so many images in this text, so many ideas, and I just pray that you could penetrate the fog in our minds and just help it to speak to where we are right now. Help us to live in the victory of the Lamb, even if it looks like defeat. Help us to trust that you will not be defeated. You're not mocked. That no one who speaks out against your authority will, will stand against you. And God, as we are tempted by power, prestige, by, by possessions, by, by even What seem to be moral victories as we're tempted to, to use different methods to gain those speak to us clearly the fact that we are marked with the Holy Spirit. That there's a lamb that we follow who has set an example for us and teach us to surrender our lives to you and to live that way despite what the implications are here. Help us to trust that you will protect us, that you will bring us home regardless of what happens here. Help us to rest in the fact that this is your world. In your name we pray. Amen. That though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Though the beasts of political power and misdirected religious power try to draw you away and make your life difficult, doesn't matter. God is the ruler yet. I, I can't get away from that. the centerpiece. I really think of the whole book is chapter 12, verse 10 and 11. I encourage you to write it down somewhere this week. Jake posted a a picture. Just listen. Now have come the salvation and the power. This is not future. This is not eventually will come. He says, now, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And though the wrong seems off so strong, all that strength is, is the last fury of trying, it's a defeated dragon trying to maintain, and he's coming up short, 666, he's incomplete, because we have overcome him by the blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony, and if we do not love our lives so much as to shrink from death. And my prayer for you this week is that you can live that way, that no matter what you see happening in the moral climate of the nation or the laws or the way the political systems are going or who's in power or who's running and who's not running, that you can realize that God wins the victory. He's not losing. And you can live in that confidence that he will carry you through no matter what tomorrow brings. Amen.